The book of Psalms is greatly loved by God's people. I know I can say without a doubt, I enjoy, I love the book of Psalms. And I think that everyone who is here can say with me that they are fully appreciative of the book of Psalms and how it ministers to them. It's a book that reveals and discloses to us things about God. And we recognize that that's the purpose of all of God's truth. And so it is in the book of Psalms we learn more about our wonderful God and Savior. But the reason the book of Psalms touches us is so meaningful to us. It is the expression of the heart of an individual in love with his God and a desire to know him better, to serve him faithfully, and to bring glory to his name. So the book of Psalms, so special to us because it often reflects the thoughts, the feelings, the expressions of our own heart. As we look at the book of Psalms, we recognize that this was Israel's hymn book. And just like in our hymn books, we have so many concepts identified in them that have to do with our understanding of biblical truth. The book of Psalms did that for the nation of Israel. Now the great difference is, no matter how great our hymns of the church might be, there's always the possibility of an error that's conveyed in any of them. But that's not true of Israel's hymns. This book is guided and directed by the Spirit of God and was without error. And it is enabled to teach us truth in the things of God. We also know that this is Israel's prayer book. It's their sweet hour of prayer where they would offer their expressions of praise. They would offer their pleas and their petitions to God. The name itself is taken from the Septuagint and uh, the Vulgate or the Latin translation that we have in our English Bibles and in so many of the other versions of the scripture. We, We know it as the book of Psalms. And the basic meaning of that term is a poem that is set to a stringed instrument. In the Hebrew, the term for this book is the Telahim. It is the praises that are being offered to God. And in this book, whether we're looking at a petition that is being offered, a time where the psalmist is expressing his grief and the urgency of his need for God to intervene, there is never a time where it is a hopeless expression on the part of the psalmist. Because the truth that the psalmist brings out for you and I to remember as well is never are God's people in a hopeless situation. God is the one who is more than able to take care of the needs of his people in any circumstance in which they may find themselves. So to Israel, this is the praises, the Telahim. And as we look at the various songs that are written, we come to Psalm 146. And let me read for you this psalm, and then we can talk about it uh, in some detail. Praise the Lord, or hallelujah, Hallelujah, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. 
His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. And we're not sure of the author of this song. You'll notice there's no superscription where the author either identified himself or provided us with information about the circumstance. And what I want to remind you about as you read and study in the book of Psalms, when there is a superscription, which means there's some information given before the psalm itself, that phrase, that statement is really verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. And so if it begins with a statement like a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son, that's verse 1 in the psalm. And in our Bibles, it would be written before verse 1. But the importance is, it is divinely, uh, divinely superintended by the Lord as well and is part of the biblical text. And in this case, we don't have one. And there's been a number of offerings that have been given as to who may have been the author of this psalm or what might have been the occasion for it. But the bottom line is, we really don't know. And so in this case, it wasn't that important for uh, us to understand. When we look at the Psalms, we also know that there's groupings. The first grouping that we can see is that it's divided into five sections or five books that were done that way to go along with the five books of Moses or the Pentateuch. But we also find that they were structured or put into uh, different groupings according to the purpose of those psalms. And the Hebrew who is responsible for putting the book of Psalms in its present position or categorization as you and I have it in our Bibles was Ezra. And Ezra put together this grouping and interestingly enough, beginning in Psalm 146, there is a similarity in this song to the last psalm, Psalm 150. And these are the Hallelujah Psalms. In other words, if you look at Psalm 46, the first statement is, praise the Lord. What's the last statement in Psalm 46? Praise the Lord. Look at 147. What's the first phrase? Praise the Lord. What's the last phrase? Praise the Lord. Look at 148. Begins with what? Praise the Lord. What's the last phrase at the end of verse 14? Praise the Lord. Look at 149. What's the first phrase? Praise the Lord. What's the last one? Praise the Lord. And then 150 begins with praise the Lord and it ends with praise the Lord. Or as Kobe said, hallelujah. And that literally is what is there. Hallelujah, we think of it as an English word. It is a transliteration of a Hebrew word. 
In other words, it was not brought into English and defined. It was the Hebrew letters making now an English word. What is that English word? Hillel, Yah. Hallelujah. What is its meaning? Praise Yah, or in our Bibles it's translated as Lord, because you'll remember the Hebrews were commanded in the Old Covenant, they're not to lift up God's name to vanity. They never wanted to be guilty of treating Him as trite and common. So anytime they found the personal name of God, instead of ever mentioning it on their lips, they substituted the Hebrew word Adonai. And the meaning of the Hebrew word Adonai is Lord. But in our translation, to be sure we know, we're not looking at the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord, Master, or Sir. We're looking at the personal name of God, which is built off of the Hebrew verb to be, I am, Yahweh. Hallelujah, what? Yah, there's the beginning of his personal name. And if you look at Psalm 146, and you look at the first statement of praise the Lord, what do you notice about the word Lord? All capital letters. And wherever in the Old Testament we find the word Lord, in all capital letters, it is telling us it's the personal name of God. He is the God who revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the God who made covenant with His people. He is the personal God who has made Himself known. He is the great I Am. And the ultimate revelation that He made of Himself was through our wonderful Lord and Savior, God the Son, Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the unique One, the only begotten One of the Father, full of grace and truth. So guess what kind of psalms these are? These are praise psalms. These are psalms that are telling us we need to praise Yahweh. We need to praise the Lord, the personal God who has revealed Himself to man. Now in the way uh, Ezra would put these groupings together, I've already, I guess, indicated to you there's a grouping of Psalm 146 through Psalm 150. They uniquely begin with and end with the word hallelujah. And when we think of Ezra putting these different psalms together, we have a grouping that is known as the Egyptian Hillel. The hallelujah psalms that had to do with the deliverance out of Egypt and a remembrance of Passover. And that grouping is Psalms 113 through 118. And the ones that would have been sung by our Savior in the Last Supper, when it says they sang a hymn as they departed, they would have been singing Psalm 118, the last one in that feast. Then you have another grouping that's known as the Great Hillel. That is Psalms 120 through Psalm 136. And since there's none after Psalms 146 through 150, these are known as the final Hillels. The final Hillel. The final praise the Lord. And so we're looking at the first in this grouping of praising the Lord. And so it is a praise song that is being given. If we look at the content, you'll notice 
it is a focus on Yahweh himself. What kind of a God is he? He's a caring God. He's a compassionate God. But it is just as important is the fact that he is a ruling God. He is a God who has established his throne. The Lord, verse 10, will reign how long? Forever. There's no beginning. There's no end to his sovereignty. The Lord our God has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. And the great comfort that you and I can gain is the fact that this merciful God, this God who has made Himself known to us, this God who brings deliverance and redemption to His people, is the God who is ruling over all. And so the thrust of this psalm, if we look at its concentration, is that Yahweh is the sovereign Lord, the sovereign King, who generously blesses His people. Now, how about the particulars of the psalm? Well, there's a number of ways that we could divide it. Um, Basically, it's three different stanzas. um, And my division is going to be based more on content than necessarily the musical format. But in it, what we have first is a call to praise. And that's really in verses 1 through, excuse me, 1 through 4. And then in 5 and 6, we have the reality of our God, His capability, and why it is that He's to be praised. And then in verses uh, 6 through the end, the display of this compassionate King as He cares for His own. So how does He begin? He says, hallelujah, praise Yah. Now, we've got to stop just for a moment. What does it mean to praise? Well, the real foundation of this term to praise is a, mean, a word which means turn the light on. Put him in the spotlight. If you think of the theater, you think of somebody that's a celebrity. He's being interviewed. All of the lights and the cameras focus on that individual. The root foundational concept is this is where we need to focus. This is where our attention is to be given. He is the individual that is to be honored. This is the individual that is to be acknowledged. Who is it? Yahweh himself. We are to praise. We are to express his uniqueness, his greatness, his worthiness his dependability and reliability and why it is so appropriate for us to trust him. Now this word hallelujah can either be an imperative, an imperative, or it can be an indicative, a statement of fact. And both are really true. If I say hallelujah, I am making a statement. Yahweh is the one to be praised. But on the other hand, it is a statement where I am calling upon, in this case, myself, as well as those with me, because praise is never an individual thing. We want to share what we acknowledge as being important with someone else. 
And I've used the example before. If you've gone to the symphony, you've gone to a sporting event, whichever it is. If something marvelous happens, the first thing you want to do is you want to make sure everybody with you agrees that that was great. And so instead of saying, praise the Lord, what we usually say on those occasions is, did you see that? Did you hear that? Can you believe that? You know what you're doing? You're inviting everyone to join in with your enthusiasm about something that is noteworthy and an individual that ought to be pointed out. It's something that is uniquely special. Now, no matter how great an accomplishment man may do, nothing compares and no one compares with the Lord our God. And so he begins with saying, Praise Yahweh. Make Him the focus. Oh, my soul, from the depth of my being, from the reality within, not just giving lip service, not just mechanically going through some exercise, but the reality of the depth of my being, recognizing God is the one to whom the focus must be placed. It's the focus that ought to be when we gather together with others, but it's also the focus that ought to be true in my daily life. The second part of this call is seen in a commitment. Notice he says in verse 2, I will sing, I will praise Yahweh while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. God's people are to be a praising people. We so often acknowledge, rightfully so, and emphasize the importance of prayer. But what I need to remember is prayer really flows out of praise. And prayer that doesn't include is not encompassed by praise is inappropriate. We have need But guess what? God knows what you need before you ask. So the purpose in prayer is giving Him the center stage. Putting Him in the spotlight. Instead of being overwhelmed by the circumstance in which you are found, there's a place for us to be still and to remember He is God. It is the importance for us to be a people who from the depth of our beings have genuine gratitude, thanksgiving, and praise to God for who He is and what He's done. He says, I will sing praises to personal, right? My God, as long as I have my being. Now, interestingly enough, this final Hillel, Psalms 146-150, through were associated with the daily prayers of the synagogue. Remember, they would, Peter and John went to the temple to pray at the time of the evening prayers, right? Part of that would have been singing Psalm 146. Because as you and I lay our petitions before God, we need to recognize how essential, how foundational is praise when we petition our God. Do you understand the privilege that is yours to first 
be called a child of God? It's not by your doing that you are in Christ. No man can boast before the Lord. God is the one who initiated. God's the one who's done the work. We were born not by the will of man, but by the will of God. Isn't that what it says in the prologue of John's Gospel? It's the recognition that God is the one that's given me the privilege of being called a child of God. God is the one that says, cast all your cares upon me. Why? Because I care for you. A recognition that God will take care of us, never leave us nor forsake us. I don't care how difficult is my circumstance. God is still right there doing what? Working all things together for good. To those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Instead of focusing upon my problem and my plight, I need to be thinking about how great is my God. How worthy of all praise. Isn't that our purpose in being? See, sadly today in the American church, we've just flip-flopped the whole thing. We think God exists for us. We think God is our cosmic lackey to give us everything we want. Instead of recognizing the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, we exist for Him. And I don't know why, but I've been reminded by my pet dog more and more of what it means to be a preacher who lives to please his master. After morning comes up and puts her head on my lap, wants to be petted, just to be loved. He's the creator who made all things, isn't he? You're his creature. And what's really most important is to acknowledge your reason for existence is to praise and honor and glorify Him. And a failure to do so doesn't make you any different than the unregenerate of the world. Prayer must include praise. It's essential because God is worthy of that acknowledgement. First, because of who He is. And second, because of the unique things that He has done. And continues to do. Out of that commitment, there's a counsel. Don't trust in mortal man. That's the trap we all fall into. We think somebody's going to help us out of this jam. Some human being's going to make sure everything is right. The reality is, man's problem is so big that no man can ever correct it. You understand that, don't you? You acknowledge that reality every time you say, the only reason I'm acceptable to God is that Christ died for my sins. That man is unable to correct man's problem. And so the psalmist said, don't put your trust in mortal man, because any promises of deliverance and salvation and getting you into, you know, some sort of utopia is going to fade away with him when he dies. Man is a passing shadow. But God's the one that remains from generation after generation. And so what you and I need to remember as we watch the unfolding of current events and the things happening around us, 
We need to be individuals whose confidence and trust is in the Lord. Doesn't mean we don't pray. It doesn't mean we don't look for those who can be helpful. But ultimately, the bottom line is no human being is going to bring about the deliverance. And you can see how easily people can get sucked into this. And I can see how easy it'll be for the whole world to follow after the Antichrist. Ah, there's our answer. And people will be saying peace and safety when sudden destruction comes upon them. Don't trust in mortal man. His existence is a derived existence. He's depended upon even air to continue. And when his spirit departs, he returns to the dust, and that very day his thoughts perish. But in contrast, how blessed. What a unique benefit. How blessed is the one whose help is the God of Jacob. That one true God who identified himself with Jacob who made covenant promises with him that had first been given to his father Isaac, who had been given to his father Abraham. That unconditional promise that I will bless you. The reality of being the object of God's unconditional blessings. How uniquely benefited, how blessed is that individual whose help who has one that comes alongside to take care of my daily needs, the God of Jacob, whose hope, the one I look to expectantly, that God will faithfully fulfill whatever he has promised, whose hope is in the Lord as God. So how big is your problem? Sometimes you sing that song, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows my sorrows, right? I just have this unique mountain in front of me, nobody can really see how much I'm going through. The reality is, is anything too hard for the Lord? And so the psalmist said, from that counsel, instead of depending upon man, depend upon the one who spoke. And he brought the whole universe into existence. He's the creator who's made this whole universe. There is no problem that is too big for him. And along with that, he says at the end of verse 6, he keeps faith, he is dependable, he's reliable. He fulfills what he's promised forever. Not just in a moment. Oh, I forgot about doing that. Our God remains faithful day after day, generation after generation. He is someone we can depend upon. So basically what he's saying to us, you and I as Christian people ought to be individuals who have an abandonment to a God-centered life. And knowing in that abandonment to a God-centered life, there is no place of greater blessing. And this one that you and I have the privilege of calling our Heavenly Father, who is the King of Glory, is the one that has compassionate and concern for even the individuals that to the world are the nobodies. To those who have been oppressed, 
to the widows and to the orphans. God cares for his creatures and in spite of his exalted greatness, he is the one that supports the needy and the helpless in this world. And as he does so, his favor is towards the righteous, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The recognition, as it says at the end of verse 8, he loves the righteous. Those are the individuals he's brought into a relationship with himself. Those are the ones who are the objects of his grace. And in contrast to that, those who are outside of Christ and they seem to be getting ahead, the reality is they're going to run into the Lord eventually and he's going to thwart them. They won't fulfill all of their evil intentions. And you know why that's so? The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, in all generations, He is worthy of our praise. What do we understand? Notice first in verse 5, He is called the God of Jacob. Yahweh, all capitals. In fact, I failed to mention as you look at this psalm, Eleven times the personal name of God is mentioned in the short little song, Yahweh. Three other times the contracted form, Yah, is mentioned. And after that, repeatedly, the personal pronouns, he, he, he. The point is, God is the one who has disclosed himself in covenant promise to his people. And he is the one that is faithful to what he has said. Second, notice he says, this God of Jacob, verse 6, is the one who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. He is the creator, the one who is the source of all being, the one who is called all into existence by the counsel of his own will. He has the ability, the capability, to take care of each and every need of all of his children. He doesn't fail any of them. Because he is faithful. End of verse 6. He is the faithful God. He is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his people. Jesus said it like this. No one can pluck them out of my hand, and the Father who gave them to me is greater than all. And no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. The recognition that we're kept in His power. Or as Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 8, I am convinced that no one or nothing, I'm summarizing there, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. He is our faithful Lord. And then he is the sovereign king. He doesn't have to ask permission from you, from me, from any being, from spirit beings or earthly beings. Is it okay if I do this? He's the one that does the counsel of his will in all things. The Lord our God rules. So, how appropriate for us to be people who depend upon him. Three times in three different ways, it tells us we're to be a people trusting in Yahweh, in the one true God. Verse 
Uh, three, he says it by contrast. Don't trust in mortal man. So if I'm not to trust in mortal man, who am I to rely upon? Whom am I to depend upon? Well, the contrast is, I'm either trusting in man and what man can do, or I am trusting in God and what he can do. Trusting in the Lord. He is my help, as he says in verse 5. The one who comes alongside to perform and do for me the things I cannot do for myself. I am so thankful that God is not limited to my abilities. He is my helper. I won't be afraid what man can do for me. My God has abilities that I do not even possess or can't even begin to fathom and imagine. And He is my hope. I have this confident expectation that whatever God says, that's what will take place. I have this certain excitement to know that what God moves to do, it will be done. And I can trust in Him. But ultimately, if I am one who is trusting in this God, I need to be one who is giving Him the praise that He deserves. I'm praising Him for who He is. I am praising Him for how capable He is. I am praising Him for His compassionate care. I am praising Him that things are not out of order, but His throne is established and He rules forever. And no matter what circumstance I am in, like the psalmist, I will sing praise to my God as long as I have my being. Because He has given me the privilege of knowing Him, of being the object of His grace, And he is the one that is worthy of all my praise. Let's pray.